0: Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Gary Howard, your editor at Sea Trade Maritime News, and today I'm in conversation with Paul Jewell, System Development Manager at the National Grid, a British electricity and gas utility company. Paul joins us to discuss the critical role of electricity distribution in the decarbonisation of industry, the future power needs of ports in particular, and the need for the shipping and port sector to keep energy producers and distributors in the loop when it comes to future plans to ensure that the grid is ready to support future needs. As ever, I start by asking Paul to introduce himself.
1: Hello, Gary. My name's Paul John, and I'm the System Development Manager
0: at National Grid. And how is National Grid electricity distribution preparing for net zero?
1: You mentioned electricity distribution, and, and that is where the impact, I think, will hit the most. So in the distribution bit of National Grid, we provide electricity to 8 million customers across the Southwest, South Wales, the East and West Midlands. And all of those customers are going to end up moving to net zero. Some will be early adopters, some will be late adopters. It doesn't really matter. But they're all going to expect to decarbonize their heating and transport. And the key thing for us is that when we build a network and when we build assets, we build them with a 50 year life. So essentially the cables we're laying today and the substations we're building today need to be ready for what everybody's going to be doing in that net zero future. So there's two main areas where we do our preparation. The first is we now build networks that are net zero ready. So we build bigger networks, fatter cables, bigger connections to homes whenever we lay new assets or whenever we refurbish or replace assets. And the other big area that we look at is we we look at what's coming down the line. So we've got a future scenarios team that look at the scenarios that we could be expected to see, look at the demand that's going to grow on the network and, and look at essentially where that takes us from a position now to a position in the future. And one of the interesting things, if, if you look at that, is if you just take the government scenarios for electric vehicles and heat pumps and roll forward only to 2030, by then all cars that are brand new will be either electric or hybrid. And there's about a million new registrations a year in the UK. And there's also a government ambition for around about 600,000 heat pumps a year in the UK. So if you take that 1.6 million things and you divide it into the bit of the UK that we cover, we end up with sort of 2,000 things a day connecting to our network, be they they heat pumps or EVs. And, And unless we can think ahead with our systems and our processes and the way we deal with customers and the way we build the network, we won't be ready for that when it comes. And the key thing for us is to be ready because we want to stay in the background, just delivering energy to people that need it.
0: Yeah it's, in, it's interesting that you, you mentioned about the sort of asset lifetime that you're aiming for because within maritime our ships tend to last anywhere between 20 to 30 years and currently that's a very difficult thing for us to invest in looking ahead because we have other problems like knowing which fuel we're going to be using which in turn relies slightly on the grid. What's the sort of expected impact on el- electricity demand overall? You You've mentioned the number of New items going to be connected to the grid, perhaps on a daily basis. How does that add up as a portion of, of electricity demand in your region?
1: Demand is going to grow everywhere, and it's probably easy to go with the uh, sort of high level numbers from the Government Committee on Climate Change. They say that by 2050, the UK, in effect, will have four times the amount of generation on the network than it had before, four times the amount of use of electricity by customers and the network will be twice as big. So you know, there's the sort of four time metric that's going in there with people using electricity as they decarbonize from fossil fuels. But the, the two times metric of how much bigger the grid is, I think, plays to two things that we're looking at. Firstly, is that if the network is going to be twice as big, then we've got to start building it so that it's ready by 2050 to be twice as big. And the other thing is that um, a lot of people will talk about flexibility and you will talk about people shifting demand away from peak times charging electric cars during off-peak hours using heat pumps when the energy is cheaper all those sorts of things which feed into that two times the grid but four times the volume of use metric and, and shows that as well as building a big grid we're also going to be running a grid which is more intelligent and moves energy around more during the day. So, so we expect a more dynamic grid rather than a, a, a sort of what we would have had in the past, which is a passive grid that's just built to maximum demand.
0: That must make the, those forward calculations really difficult if you're factoring in a complete change in consumer habits as well.
1: Yeah, it makes it very difficult, but we've got a whole team that does that. So um, we, we've got a system operator team that look at future scenarios and they, they, they generally try and follow four basic scenarios. It's the same one that National Grid's electricity system operator, the national operator, use. And they either track the UK as moving to net zero quicker or moving to net zero slower, doing it as a result of customer take up or as a result of legislative change and come up with basically four versions of the future for us. What we do when we go to our regulator to ask for the money to build our network is is we pick our best view scenario, which probably isn't any of the four, it's it's a mixture of the four to come up with the best view. And that shows what we're expecting. Now, as you can imagine, things change really quickly. And we did an electric vehicle project back in 2015. Um, It was called Electric Nation at the time. It was the world's largest study into charging at home. And I remember when the project was first pitched to me, the idea was we'd get 700 EV drivers and we sort of monitor their usage of home chargers. Back in 2015, my biggest concern was where were we gonna get 700 EV drivers from? And, and it was very early Teslas and very early Nissan Leafs and nothing else. And, and we're only what, seven or eight years past that. And, and the world has changed. And I think we try and build that into our scenarios, but in, in the world of maritime decarbonisation. We haven't seen where you guys are going yet. And it might be that, again, a 10-year leap into the future might give us some certainty on, on what you're doing, how you're decarbonizing, But it's still very early days. But all of that needs to be rolled into our scenarios that at the moment we now reforecast year on year because we just want to see things changing and see where industries are going.
0: Yeah, if it makes you feel any better, the reason you don't know where we're going is because we don't know where we're going. So that's not a fault on your side. <laughs> so move this conversation more towards maritime. Are there specific challenges posed by the decarbonisation of ports, where which is, I suppose, where the electricity supply needs to go?
1: Yeah, one of the big challenges is understanding how much energy you're all going to need. Now, it's, it's interesting that you you say you you don't know where you're going yet, and I, I quite get that. I think. There's a view for us that wherever you go, electricity will be involved. So if ships use electrical power, we're definitely involved. If you use hydrogen or ammonia, then you're going to probably be using green hydrogen made with renewable electricity. So so again, there's that electric mix, even if the end use isn't electrical because it's turned into another fuel source. The challenge is that, it's a scale bigger than anything we've done before. So I'll go back onto roads just because we've done those. So I think what what we've learned from roads, we could probably apply to the maritime industry. So when we were looking at charging, as I said, one of our early projects was looking at charging at home. Once we thought we'd sort of cracked people charging at home and and we have in fact, if you want a a charger, at a domestic property, then we just say, yes, we sort of take that in our stride now on our network. But one of the questions for me next was, what happens if people want to charge when they're out and about? So we were looking at what's required for motorway services. And it became obvious that motorway services needed megawatts and megawatts of supply capacity. And a comment that I made that stuck was to say that motorway services needed the same sort of capacity as a small town. We then thought the the substations that we use to feed a small town are big substations, maybe 40 metres by 40 metres with outdoor equipment, switch rooms, all sorts of other things that I think are lovely because I'm an electrical engineer, but I'm sure most other people were thinking quite horrid. I was thinking, well, that isn't gonna work at motorway services. How are we going to achieve what motorway services need? So we ran an innovation project with Rush Transformers and Moto, the motorway service operator. And we created a shrunk version of one of those big substations And it's actually extra Services at the bottom of the M5 in the southwest. And it shows that we can get 12 or 20 megawatts of capacity in a couple of shipping containers, that sort of size, and deliver it to where it's needed. Now, in the world of ports, I think that almost goes to scale bigger, because people tell me that if a cruise liner is tied up alongside, that can take 15 or 20 megawatts on its own. So suddenly, this sort of two-shipping container-sized lump of electricity, it's not having one per motorway service like we have on the roads. It's one per vessel when you get to a port that's got a lot of cruise ships. And and the scale of the change makes things bigger for us. Now, for motorway services, we're going one voltage higher than we would normally supply. So if you imagine housing estates, the backbone network to a housing estate is normally supplied at 11,000 volts the backbone supply to motorway services that are decarbonised will be coming in at 33,000 volts. And I can see us having to do the same with ports that we might have to beef up the supply capacity that's required for ports. And I think crucially for port operators, if we think we need to do that, then there's not a lot of point in having a supply upgrade that gives you more power at 11,000 volts. Now is the time to think about laying those bigger cables and, and building a network as i said with an asset life of 50 years building a network that's big enough for the future even if you don't use all of its capacity in, in the early days but i think back to you saying that the challenges one of the challenges is not really being sure how much you need yet which is why we want to start a discussion with port operators
0: sure i expect as well as just having vessels coal lining alongside it's quite likely that Green fuel development will probably happen in and around the port environment as well.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm definitely expecting to see that, and I think the the, the call for evidence that government put out last year on shore power and, and cold ironing made us look at what would be needed, and it, it is huge. And the comment of me saying that's like you know, maybe twenty megawatts for a um a cruise liner we were saying that 12 or 20 megawatts is the capacity of a small town. And you think, well, of course, if you're connecting a cruise liner to shore power, it sort of is a small town. (laughs) So why wouldn't you expect it to be be that level of power supply? I think also in, in the world of maritime, lots of container ports have refrigerated containers that need energy, which again, where does that fit in? If you've got a port which carries a lot of cargo, then there are, HGVs, which will come to collect containers and cargo that need charging. There'll be the ports that import cars and trucks that need charging of those vehicles. Before you then even get to the sort of, I suppose, more local into shore use of power, and where where we've seen that first is um, some of the shore operators that are looking to support the um, Celtic sea power, potential new wind turbines in the Irish Sea. And, and they're looking at large supplies for the creation of hydrogen because the expectation is a lot of those boats will be hydrogen fueled. that support the wind turbines. Yeah, that, that's a long way before we even get to a position where we start talking about how we decarbonize the existing fleet and maybe the small operators with one or two vessels that have got a vessel with a 50- or 60-year life in it and I um, don't know where to go next.
0: Yeah, plenty of variables. And, and all the while, we're, we're comparing cruise ships to small towns, while I expect the demands of small towns are growing quite rapidly as well as people move on to electric vehicles and the like.
1: Yeah, so we're expecting the network to have to be twice as big by 2050. So yeah, your cruise ships probably won't increase because they are, in, in essence, electrically powered anyway, albeit that the electricity comes from diesel generators. So I think we, we know that we know what the demand of those will be because there isn't a gas supply when you're out sea. So everything is um, diesel generator
0: powered. Yeah, I mean, as far as maritime is concerned, the cruise ship is the worst case scenario for power demand. So yeah. probably good to be focusing on them and then everything else would be nice and easy, right? <laughs> yeah. We talk quite a lot within the maritime space about collaboration as being absolutely key in reaching decarbonisation goals. Is, is that the same in, in your industry?
1: Yeah, definitely. The the only way that we're ever going to achieve the UK's goals is if we work with organisations and we do things with organisations that maybe we wouldn't have normally spoken to. So from the electricity industry point of view, I I don't want us to get to a position in 2030 or 2040 where people that are trying to decarbonise say, oh, it would be great, but I couldn't because the electricity company didn't have enough power. That puts us in completely the wrong place because we don't want to get in the way of net zero. But as I said earlier, the way that we will make sure we keep ahead of net zero is by having really good forecasts and trying to build a network that's big enough and ready. And our regulator in, in our current price review period that starts beginning of April is already doing that and already allowing us to build a network that's bigger and socialise more costs that would have fallen to end users to try and allow us to build a network. But a lot of what we need is help from the electricity users to understand where they're going. And this is really an area, maritime is an area where we haven't had a lot of impact yet. We haven't had a lot of engagement yet. And we really want to reach out and find what people are doing. And it's really good to be doing that when you are all in the early stages of working out what comes next, because it would be so much more difficult if you'd made investments for a particular fuel source or an energy stream and, and then found that we couldn't support it
0: afterwards. Sure. And do you think there is sort of an assumption on our part that you know, that the electricity will be there or that we're just not far enough in our plans to have reached out to warn you or ask for the power?
1: I think there's an assumption on everybody's part that the energy will be there. And I think that's almost a success of the electricity industry is that we've sort of been there in the background, building a network that's big enough for what anybody's wanting to do and and carried on in in that sense. But we do need to do better than that. If you take what we did when um, generation within the UK became bigger and more distributed, so a lot of the, the solar and wind power generators that hit the distribution networks, we connected a lot of them, and we, certainly with solar, when the um, the incentives were around, we connected a lot of solar power very quickly. If, if I take the Southwest as an example, the Southwest of our area has a maximum demand of one gigawatt, and we've connected around about four gigawatts worth of generation to it. So we, we, we can react and, and we can stretch. I mean, if you, if you talk to people that are in the, the solar industry, they will remember the year that we got a little bit stuck and uh, we really couldn't connect much more until we'd worked out some network reconfigurations. So, so you always sort of hit those, those little hurdles and pinch points. But we need to work with, and it, it's not just maritime, maritime and aviation, are the, the two big transport areas that we haven't yet seen a pathway for, we haven't yet seen government legislation for. So we're, we're still trying to find out where you're going and what you're doing.
0: Okay, my final question was going to be how electricity distribution networks can assist ports in reaching their net zero goals, but it it almost feels like it might be the other way around at the moment, and the ports could probably help you out and help themselves out by communicating their plans as far in advance as possible.
1: Yeah, definitely that. A port should be able to find out who their network operator is. In our world, of of our four licensed areas, the South West, South Wales and the Midlands areas, we're on the south coast, but we're not sort of Southampton, Portsmouth, Pool. Our first big port is probably Plymouth. We then go through Falmouth back round to Bristol, into South Wales, to Cardiff, across to Swansea, out to um, Milford Haven and Fishguard. And on the east coast, we actually haven't got very many big ports at all. So it is the other network operators, unless you're in those areas that you need to go to. There's a a trade association called the Energy Networks Association and and they have a find my DNO link so you you can work out who your network operator is. And all of us in in the world of network operations are trying to do the, the scenario forecasting that we were talking of and trying to get to a position where we build networks that are ready. So definitely come and talk to us. National Grid's transmission team, which is a sort of big backbone electricity for the UK, created a little um, calculator tool which a port can use to show what its energy usage is at the moment, what it's planning to add, and um, it, it can build a sort of forecasting tool for the growth of electric um, requirements out through the years, which again is really useful for us because it helps us build the backbone network and know that, for example, if, if you're going to increase your demand by a megawatt a year for the next 10 years, we can start planning around that and make sure the network is big enough. So yeah, what we need to do is make sure that we are talking to all port operators in each of the network operators areas. I remember with motorway service operators, remember probably back 2018, 2019, I wasn't really sure who they all were. And I ended up trying to go by the Petrol Retailers Association just to find names. Talking to them and finding out what they were doing was really useful. And I remember talking with um, one of the organisations who halfway through the meeting said, this is really useful. We've learned a lot about electricity. And I just said, yeah, it's also been really useful. I've learned a lot about railway service operators. And we we need to start doing that now with the maritime industry.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's going to be very much a two-way learning experience when that conversation gets going. We'll do our best to pester all of our ports listeners to get in touch as well.
1: Yeah, that would be great if you could. Uh, There was a local authority meeting that I was at a little while ago where somebody was asking when was the best time to speak to your network operator. And the reply that we went back with is probably a few months before you've decided it's time to speak to your network operator. There's no such thing as coming to us too early. From a forecasting point of view, we we want rough outline ideas and we're more than happy to have the discussion
0: and take those. Perfect. Well, Paul, thanks so much for your time. This has been a really interesting look into something that we rely on every day but don't necessarily think of in our in our commercial plans so uh, yeah thanks very much for your time yeah thank you thank you for listening to the sea trade maritime podcast